All right, good morning. I say good morning, you say? Hola. <laughs> Hola. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you. I'm going to ask all of you to stand up for a minute. Go ahead and stand up. We're going to participate in something that might get you a date or slapped, so be careful if you're single. Uh, if, again, much like praying over the kids, ask first is always a good uh, lesson. Turn, everybody turn this way and grab the shoulders in front of you. Give them a little rub. Yeah. Come on. This is how we increase the population of the church. Appropriately. Come on, don't, don't slack. Some of you are like done already. Wait till we turn the other way. You're going to get short-ended too. All right. And no moving rows. Some of you are like, dude, I'm going to the front row. All right, turn the other way. Yeah. Give it back. Oh, here we go. Look at Alex. Like, Alex has a bad back. We should step on it. Come on. This is good. Some of you are like, I'm never coming to this church again. All right, have a seat. If you have a phobia of being touched, we apologize. If you sat next to the person you've been eyeing for a while, you're welcome. Some of you who are married are like, man, that's... I'm just going to leave that there. So we have... Robert. We have been in the book of 1 John. We're going to continue with that. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of 1 John. It is right near the end of this book, the Bible. Go ahead and open up. Uh, it's the epistle of John. Uh, we're looking at the very first one. And uh, we have gone a, a number of different ways throughout this, and we are continuing. We're continuing to walk through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, trying to wrestle with what is John trying to guide the people throughout Ephesus and Asia Minor, these churches? Why is he writing as a pastor to these people? And, and what are we supposed to glean from this book as well. It's not just for them, it's, it's for us as well. And I want to encourage you uh, to have an open mind as we go through this, uh, because John, again, he's confronting false teachers. He's confronting these teachers that are coming into the land. They're trying to water down Christianity. They're trying to minimize the call, the bar that Christ sets for us. And followers of Jesus are listening to these teachers and they're beginning to wonder. And John is confronting this behavior head on. And so we're going to begin by reading in 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse uh, 12. I write to you, dear children, this might be, actually, I'll just read it off here. I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. Amen. I am writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. We'll talk about that. 
I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I've written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. John is confronting something very prominent. And it's very similar to what we face today. John is the elder statesman of the faith at this point. He's uh, most theologians and historians believe he's the only living uh, member of the apostle crew that is still eating, drinking, breathing, writing. He's carrying on the tradition. He's carrying on the faith. And I want to re revisit what we talked about last week regarding confession because this will come up uh, towards the end this morning. We talked about this last week that regarding confession, he says that we confess not to receive forgiveness and transformation in our lives. John says that we confess because we have received confession and transformation. It's not something we go and do in order to get. It's something we respond to. And therefore, that we talked about last week, that we don't walk in the darkness, we walk in the light. And one of the things that we talked about very, very specifically last week is that we confront sin. I shared with you that I sat down with Sandy and, and just shared every sin I could think of, past, present, and probably not future, but probably future. And I just dumped it all on her. And I didn't have to do that. I wanted to do that out of the love that she has for me. And it's the same thing with God. God knows your sin. You're not telling him anything new when you come before his throne. But we do that in response to our transformation, in response to our forgiveness in Christ. John has been warning the people against the dangers of darkness and the necessity of walking in light. It is so unbelievably important. And we'll see this according to John in verses 12 through 14. This is unbelievably important, especially, and I don't want to always focus on the teens around the room, but this is so unbelievably important because one of the questions that we in youth ministry hear all the time is, I don't know how not to sin. How am I supposed to not sin? How am I supposed to control my thoughts? How am I supposed to control my behavior, etc.? John gives us a formula for it in verses 12 through 14, and that is the best defense against your sin. Let's make it personal. Right now, think of your sin. You don't have to share it. 
but think of your sin. The best defense against your sin is to remember what God has done through Jesus Christ. That's the best defense. How am I supposed to not fall into temptation at a party? How am I supposed to not go farther than I should with a guy or a girl when I'm in high school or junior high or college? How am I supposed to stay pure? How am I supposed to make the right decision? You do that by continually remembering what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. That's John's prescription. And then in verses 15 through 17, John talks about the world, which is a very, very interesting topic. I want to give you this little nugget to chew on just for a moment. Listen to this phrase. To be worldly is to love the world. I'll say that again. To be worldly is to love the world. Now, usually in church, there's two different reactions when a phrase like this is spoken, when, when this kind of a statement is given. The first response is you're disgusted. You cross your arms. You're uncomfortable. You believe with all of your heart that the church is legalistic, it's religious, and that its churchy ways are outdated, and that the world doesn't apply to us. You believe that the church, those people are out of touch and restrictive and have no sense of reality. That's one camp. The other camp, when we make a statement, to be worldly is to love the world, is you love it. You give a hearty amen. Because you can apply it to virtually anything that you don't want, that you deem to be not holy in this world. Playing cards. I call it poker watching Dirty Dancing or Game of Thrones or Elvis. We laugh. Some of you still remember those times where Elvis was the Antichrist. Marijuana. Alcohol. Beyonce. Anything that you deem not to be holy, we can apply this statement. To love the world, to be worldly is to love the world. And we can apply those things to the, to the people or the things that don't submit or apply traditions or customs of the church that you deem to be holy. And with com complete Humility before you this morning, I want to suggest to you that both groups are wrong. Whether you reject or whether you embrace world, you are wrong. That's not my opinion. That's what scripture describes. And so we need to understand the word world that John is using here in this passage. If you use the wrong word, wherever you are in the, in the context of your life, you could get yourself in trouble or get a weird look. Some of you that have been to a foreign country and you're trying very hard to learn the language, you could ask 
where the bathroom is in your mind and yet tell them they look very beautiful and receive a look. You can use the word affect and effect wrongly. Teachers in the room, raise your hands. How much does it bug you when people write or use the wrong word? Amen. <laughs> if I'm going across the street, I'm not going across it. Stop saying that. That's sin. Affect is influence. Affect is if you are making it happen. Sorry, you guys thought it was the weekend. This is school. You don't just get the Bible, you get grammar. In English, farther is physical distance. Further is figurative distance. Stop saying it wrong. You cause people to stumble when you do that. Mute is silence. Moot is hypothetical. Stop saying it wrong. You annoy people. We don't, when we don't understand the words... We can get screwed up. And most of us just let you say it because we're Christians. In our mind, we sin. We call you names. We judge you. We wonder if you ever graduated high school because you think you're great using these big words, but you're, you're not. To understand the word is of enormous implications. It's what causes us to use the word world in a wrong way and hurt a lot of people. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to cover what the word world does not mean, what the word world does mean, and how can we live in a world and love it. Does that sound good to everybody? Okay, so let's get at it. First of all, the word world does not refer to people. John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. John uses the word world all throughout his writings. He uses it in the gospel of John. He uses it in the epistle of John. He uses it in the book of Revelation. He uses it both in negative and positive ways to refer to something that needs to be rebuked or distanced from, but also something positive, something that needs to be loved and embraced and cherished. But the tendency for the church, for us as followers of Christ, is to generally view it as negative. When John speaks of the word world, he does refer to the negative, but mostly in all of his writings, it's in the positive. It's looking at the world in a very positive 
way, and we're going to understand why that is. Because John refers to the world as the objects of God's affection. Look at John 3.16. You guys know this verse. For God so loved the world. world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He gives his son to the world. How many of you have given a gift to your friend or, or given a gift to an enemy lately? Any of you have a nasty neighbor who drives you nuts and you just walk over there and give him cookies? No. It doesn't happen. You'd be weird. John 6, here's what this says. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Comes down from heaven and then gives his life to the world. Notice the Bible doesn't say comes down from heaven at a direct command and begrudgingly gives himself to the world. Comes down from heaven and gives himself to the world. The world dominantly used in scripture is people. Is people. God loves people. That's his heartbeat. Someone says, well, help me understand your God. You might start with this. God loves all people. Don't start with what he's against. Don't start with what breaks his heart. Start with God loves people. He created people in his image. They have value and dignity. If it's true, and you are truly a follower of this Christ man, you are called to love people. If you are a believer, you do not have permission from God on high to not love people in general. The Bible does not give you that permission. You do not have that right. Notice the Bible doesn't call you to just love Christians, but to love people. The Bible doesn't say to just love the people that behave well. Or drive well, because then no one would be loved. <laughs> Especially in Colorado. I have never, you know, all my years of police work in California, I have never seen more red lights blown in the state of Colorado in my life. And I lived in LA and Chicago. <laughs> never have I seen so many red lights blown. Hate those people. Hate's a strong word. And I use it well. You're not called to just love the people that look like you, talk like you, act like you, believe like you. We are called to love all people. We're not called to try and figure out if someone's living life right or wrong. That's not our job. No one's given you that task or the assignment Jesus didn't go be with the Father and say, go and make disciples and make sure you analyze if they're living right or wrong. He said, just go and love this world. Love your God. Make disciples. It's not your job. We have absolutely zero permission to be prejudiced or to be a bigot or to exercise any kind of discrimination. 
You have no such right. We are rather to care for the immigrant, the poor, the stranger, the sick, the widow, the young child. Why? Because they're people. We are to care for and love the gay, the straight, the old, the young, the married, the divorced, the transgender, the blue collar, the athlete, the academic. Why? Because they're people. They're people. We are to pursue justice and, and just systems that protect people. Why? Because they're people. So when John uses the word world here, he is not, I beg you to remember this, he's not referring to people. It is not a call for you to go boycott people and to use this passage as your defense. God says, I'm not supposed to love the world, and these people are doing wrong in my eyes, so therefore I'm not going to love them. Please stop doing that. Second, the world is not creation. Tell me if you've heard this phrase, the world is going to hell in a handbag. It's not. Stop saying that. that that's so desperately minimizes God and his power and his love for the world. Stop saying this world's going to hell in a handbasket or handbag or purse or whatever we say. What is it? Handbag? Handbasket. There, so be it. The world as we know it is God's divine revelation. It's his wisdom. It's his power. It's his creativeness. It's his magnificence. John chapter 1 verse 10 says this, he came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. Jesus came into the world that he created. He loves this place. He loves his creation. Jesus is the agent through which the world was made. He's the means. It's this reference to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, where we see the handiwork of God. Occasionally, there is a tendency to elevate the immaterial world above the material, mostly because uh, it, we, we are more at peace that way. We don't have to confront something in our hearts, but that's not a biblical principle. God cares very deeply about the material world. That's why Romans 8 talks about the redemption of our bodies and creation, all things being made new, not just your soul, but the redemption of mountains and rivers and hills and, yes, even cities. He cares about the material in fact, the Bible says that all of creation is waiting, and it uses this word, it's groaning, waiting for redemption. 
It says that the mountains are waiting to be redeemed. And that they will cry out and we won't even hear a word, but it's happening. Waiting for this day of redemption. Second Peter talks about the redemption. Revelation 21 speaks of God making all things brand new, a new heaven and a new earth. And you know what it's described as? A city. Something beautiful. This is one of the greatest examples of why we as followers of Christ should love this world around us. Why recycle? Let's, let's get it all the way down to the most basic. Why not litter? Why, why recycle? Why pick up trash when we're on a hike? This, not because that's politically correct, not because we want our pathway of our nice walk to be clean, because this is God's. Everything we get to enjoy here is God's. Is, is it, has it been tainted by sin? Absolutely. You can go places all over the world and see the destruction of God's creation. And yet, even like a child that's been destroyed physically, emotionally, mentally by the hands of an unloving adult, that God still sees the beauty and love for that child, it's the same way with our creation. That even though we destroy it, even though we don't care for it, God loves it. And he's making all things new. And so when John uses the word world here, do not think of the material world. And so the question is, what does John mean when he speaks of the word world? If he says very clearly, do not love the world or anything in the world, let's figure that out. If we're wrong in some of our thinking, let's make sure we write the ship. The world and its things that John refers to is the invisible, powerful, spiritual systems of evil that exist all around us. That's what we're supposed to hate. You say, well, the Bible doesn't say we're supposed to hate it. It just says don't love it. Okay, well, let's do that. Let's split hairs here. The Bible also says do not be lukewarm. Either be hot or cold. What is the opposite of love? Hate. You cannot stand the things of the world. In other words, you cannot stand the things of the enemy. It's what's re what is referred to by theologians as the cosmos of creation. It's the world apart from God. God exists all around us. This is his creation. And yet there is a world presence all around us in the midst of that presence running parallel. And we're called not to love it. It's the work and the power and presence and effects of the principalities. Paul tells us about this world in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. He says this, You formerly, before Christ, you formerly walked according to the course, the plan, the path, the ways of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This my friends, is the world that John is warning us about. Be very, very careful, 
he says. Do not be a slave to it. Do not love it. Do not be guided by it. It's a continued thought that John carries on from last week, talking about lightness and darkness. But he was reiterating because it is so prevalent in his day, and I would offer to you, it's very, very prevalent in our day. According to the Bible, the person who attaches themselves to the world's aims and the world's ways is giving their life to the things that have no future but destruction. So what are its ways? Pride. Ego. Lust. Anger. Envy. Criticism. Judgment. And the list goes on. Don't love those things. Root them out of your soul. Root them out, John says, of your heart and of your mind. Don't allow them to, to dig down deep and to settle in you because those things are passing away. None of them have any permanency except to bring you down. That's the only reason that they exist. And we might embrace them in the moment, that kind of thinking that does not come from God but comes from the enemy. And yet, in that moment, if we embrace what the enemy is offering to us, it only brings us destruction. It destroys relationships. It destroys our fellowship, as Mark talked about it several weeks ago, our fellowship with God. It also destroys our joy that John wants to be made complete. The Bible says that the one of this world who, who allows himself or herself to feast on the things of this world, those kind of thinkings, that person is doomed to disappointment. But the one who God is creating and changing and forgiving and blessing this lasting joy, that, that one it will be made complete. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it's my favorite verse in all of the Bible, tells us that when a male or female gives their life to Jesus Christ, he or she is no longer a slave to the world systems. Christians have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the light of to the kingdom of the son that he loves. Which is why we're not supposed to love it. We've been rescued from that. You think back to the Old Testament where the Israelites, after they've been rescued from the dominion of darkness from Pharaoh, are looking back going, man, we didn't have it too bad. Like, had a place to eat, had a place to sleep. Yeah, we got whipped and tortured and some of us died, but it was sure better than walking this desert. Sometimes you and I can be rescued from the dominion of our darkness, from the dominion of our sin, and look back and go, man, those were good times. And John is trying to warn us against those things. 
You see, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God are very interesting here. The kingdom of the world, which is the enemy, and the kingdom of God are inherently incompatible. Completely. They are mutually exclusive. They are opposed to one another. They are antithetical and cannot peacefully coexist. They are at war. You cannot say, I love God and still love the world, what the world offers you. Does that mean, wrongly, I can't love my iPhone? Heck no, I love my iPhone. Does that mean I cannot love ESPN? I can love ESPN. Can I love my pride? Can I love my self-centeredness? Can I love the laundry list of my sin that I shared with Sandy last week? Can I give life to that? Not if I love God. I cannot do both. One will absolutely win out. And Jesus knew this. He warned his listeners in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. It's not possible. For either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. This is our reality. Sin is the dominant reality of this world. It just is. Until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. This is the battle. This is the battle that John is placing before us. The Old Testament likens sin to a deadly plague that's sweeping across the world. Sin is by its very nature both rebellious and ungrateful. And if we, if we were to examine our hearts or our teens' hearts at times, you guys would probably agree to this, sin, when, when we're having a bad moment, it's rebellious and it's ungrateful. And we struggle with that. All of us. Sin is incurable, meaning we have no remedy for its curse. So I want to ask you a few questions just for self-examination as we continue. Number one, do you submit to your sinful worldly cravings or do you submit to the God of all creation? Which one do you submit to? I'll give you an example. You're faced with lying or telling the truth. Do you submit to that sinful craving or do you submit to God? When you're driving on the road and someone cuts you off, do you submit to that sinful craving? We all have it. Or do you submit to God? When you're in a relationship and things are going south, do you submit to that sinful craving of self and of anger and bitterness and control like all of these things or do you submit to God? Which do you submit to on a regular basis? 
I'm not talking one-off because we can't really do that. God doesn't look at us in any way with our sinful nature as one-off. He looks at the big picture of where our life is going. So should we. So in the totality of your life, do you submit regularly to the things of this world, to the enemy, or do you submit to the God of all creation? Another way that we phrased it last week is what's your relationship like with your sin? Is it cozy? Do you embrace it? Do you find yourself, uh, you know, your meter of like level one, two, three, four, five, all the way to 10, and you know you're going there? Do you stop yourself in that moment, give yourself to the Lord, or do you just throw caution in the wind, allow that meter just to go out of control? Do you love your pride, your ego? Do you love gossip? Do you love criticalness, judgment, lust, deception, gluttony, your rights, money, success, possessions, and it goes on and on and on. These things continue to influence followers of Christ. And instead of fighting back and confronting them within our lives, we justify them and we allow them to continue. It goes like this. I have every right to be mad. I have every right to feel what I'm feeling right now. Fill in the blank. But this has been haunting the church, this kind of thinking, for many, many years. Let's just go back 150 years ago. Charles Spurgeon said this, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Remember what world isn't. World isn't people. World isn't the material. World is the deception, the lies of the enemy that says you can feel and think and do what you want. And no one can check you. No one can tell you otherwise because you are in charge of you. It is the greatest lie that the enemy has ever posed to this world. And it began in the Garden of Eden. And so the church continues to take steps back at not wanting to offend anyone, not wanting to draw a line. What, what should be happening is the church in love taking steps forward and saying, we are not going to continue to allow the world to rule in our realm, in our church, in our kids, in our marriages, in our relationships. We're going to weed those things out. Sin has been comfort, co uh, conquered. Death has been defeated. But sin still needs to be rooted out in every single one of us. There might even be one of you here today or listening online and your thought is, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm not. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just posing the scripture. We're going to jump to verses 12 through 14 as we get a, a little bit of an idea of how are we supposed to do that then? How are we supposed to? We, we, we covered what it's not. We covered what it is. How do we still live in this world, not love it the way we should not love it? How do we love it the way that we should? And John gives us a very clear indication of how we're to do just that. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. You know Christ. You have the power to defeat the evil one. These verses, 12 through 14, are the centerpiece of that outlook. 
It's the lens by which we're supposed to view this world. We began by saying this, the best defense against your sin is to remember what God has done through Jesus Christ. You know and I know you can't just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and stop sinning. How many of us have done that and gone back to the Lord and go, my bad, here I am again. Same sin. Sorry, won't ever do it again. Over and over and over we do those things. John says we are to keep in the focus of our attention these things that your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. You have the power to not be enslaved by the power of your sin. It does not have to own you. And you have been adopted. This is why John repeatedly talks to them as dear children. One side is that they are new believers. They're followers of Jesus. They're children of God. But the other is you have been adopted. Most of you know two of my sons are adopted at birth, Luke and Seth. And there's something unbelievably powerful. I think being adopted is the coolest thing in the world. Because it gives this idea of God has adopted us. And we get everything that is available to him is available to us. This means, friends, that you're not just forgiven. You do not just have the power given to you by the means of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. But you are a child of God. You are loved. You are adored. And when you have a love like that, a love from the Father, you can look at the world and you can love it correctly. And in addition, you can look at the world and not love it in the ways that you're not supposed to. But it begins, like most things in this relationship with Christ, it begins with you submitting your agenda, your behaviors, your ideas, your opinions. And so here's the, here's the takeaway. Where do you need to begin to love the world in appropriate ways? Where have you been slacking off? How do you love your neighbor that's not like you? How do you begin to love others in a way that's not judgmental or critical? And secondly, where do you need to stop loving the world? What is that sin in you that is of the enemy, the world, the principalities that continue to influence you in ways that you need to knock it off? That you need to submit to, that you need to come before the Lord and say, please, I'm begging you, root this out of me. I don't want it anymore. Those are the two questions that we're posed with. It's not a quick answer. It's certainly not a quick solution, but it's something all of us have to wrestle with. And you want to know some really good news? 
Jesus is not just your savior. He didn't come to just save you. He's your advocate. He's your defender. He goes not as a judgmental savior. He goes and stands before the father and defends you. Puts his life on the line. He's your biggest fan. He's the one who will always believe in you. Always. Even when you screw up over and over and over, he will always believe in you for the best. That's why we worship. Because boy, do we not deserve that. But boy, oh boy, do we embrace him. Because he is so good. So let's pray together and we'll continue our time in worship. God, we love you. This whole idea of the world, the, the things of the enemy, we want to admit to you that there are times when he masks himself uh, so well that it looks appetizing. It gives us a little bit more grace with Eve in the garden. And yet we're not supposed to love this world. And we're asking for wisdom on what are the ways we should love and what are the things and ways that we should not love. It's our prayer that we would wrestle with this. that we would allow your truth to speak to us and be the loudest voice we hear. In a world that is shouting opinion, in a world that's shouting self and rights and building us up as our own God, I pray that we as followers of Jesus would truly, with complete humility, submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and allow you, Jesus, to dictate what we are to love and not love. And that we would have the courage to carry that out. So I thank you for every person in this room, for those who are listening online. By your spirit, would you please make your way, speak to hearts, draw people closer to you, challenge us, convict us, Make us uncomfortable. In Jesus' name we pray.